0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 94. It's titled, How Money is Created and Destroyed. I often get emails from listeners that have gone back and listened to the earliest episodes. Many have listened to all 93 episodes, and they have questions on something I might have said. They'll challenge me on things I've said. And in some respects, some of the questions or their points are valid because there are things I said in some of the earlier episodes that I wish I would have said differently or explained myself better, particularly when it comes to money and the government and how money is created, how money is destroyed. And I want to address two questions I got recently recently One is from Mike. He lives in the UK. He says, here in the UK, the vast majority of sterling, 97%, was created by private banks through credit creation. In Switzerland, it is 90% today. I suspect similar in the USA. To my knowledge, no quantitative easing program has changed this balance such that the state is the majority creator of money credit. Hence, it seems to me that the main externality, it, if it is to be considered external, is the private system, private banking system. What is your view? He's saying and he's suggesting that because I said that governments in create money when they spend and they destroy money when they tax, and he is saying that, no, the vast majority of money that is created is created by the banking system. I agree with him, and I wish he would have worded that better, because the follow-up question is from Victor, who lives in Sweden. He says, you said in your podcast that when a government is spending, they create money, and when they collect taxes, they destroy money. My belief or viewpoint has always been that because we as citizens pay very high taxes, we collect a lot of money together for the greater good, paving roads and building schools, et cetera. The money ends up at the government account and can be spent on costs that are related to collective things like those mentioned before, correct? Now to my question. So to use your words, why is my government so keen to destroy so much of my monthly salary? That's what we're going to cover today. We're going to focus on how banking creates money, and we're going to focus on the government and why I sort of confuse what happens in theory in terms of how governments create money and what is happening in practice. But the reality is the vast majority of money that is created in, the, in developed countries, and I suppose in developing countries, is created by the private banking system. When I was in college, I took a class on banking, and one of the exercises we did was to participate in a computer simulation in which we ran our own banks. I joined up with another classmate. And every week we would dutifully set our deposit rates and our lending rates as we competed with other classmates to attract funds from these virtual depositors and these virtual lenders. And, and how much we got in deposits was dependent on what deposit rate for CDs and for other demand deposits that we set relative to, other, to our other classmates. And then how much we were able to lend out was very much dependent on the loan rates we set. We learned in that class that banks were financial intermediaries, that they channeled customer deposits into worthwhile projects initiated by creditworthy borrowers, who then used those loan proceeds to build buildings, to buy equipment, inventory, etc. And hopefully those borrowers would repay the loans with interest, allowing the banks to make a profit. This is just the plain financial intermediation. And that made sense to me as a young college student. Now, once we got a little further into into the class, we got into this concept called fractional reserves, that banks only had to keep a percentage of their deposits available in case depositors wanted to withdraw funds. When I first had a bank account at a credit union, I would see that safe there in the back of the credit union. I had my little passbook, and they would print how much money. I don't think I ever got over $100. But I just assumed all the money was in the back of the bank. It, just, it didn't occur to me that it, it went elsewhere. And in fact, with this fraction reserves, as I was taught in this banking class, is that a, a bank makes a loan to an individual, and loans out potentially ninety percent of another depositor's deposit, and so they make that loan that individual they go buy something, and let's say they go buy a car, and then whoever sold them that car now has some money, which they go and put in the bank as a deposit and then the bank in turn goes ahead and lends out ninety percent of that amount. This assumes that the the reserve. Requirement is 10% of the deposit amount. And so you have this situation where banks are are always lending out deposits. And and the deposits are made up of, of prior loans. And so you have this expansion. I remember doing the math that showed how the initial deposit kept being lent and deposited over and over again, increasing the nation's supply of money. And so you have this expansion of money through this this idea of fractional reserves. I ended up dropping the banking class partway through the academic quarter. It was a lot of work, and I don't recommend this. But my philosophy in college was, I was trying to massage my grade point average. And, and if I had a class that I, I didn't like and I felt like I was going to get a B and not an A, oftentimes. I would drop it. Now, it was a little easier because we were on quarters instead of semesters, and so it was, it was much easier to do, but I would tend to load up on classes and then oftentimes would drop one. Either I didn't like it or I just, just didn't care for it, or I just didn't care for the teacher and felt like she wasn't or he wasn't <laughs> going to give me an A. I'm not sure I would go about college the same if I went back today. Nor would I encourage my kids to do it. But that, that's how I did I had no idea. So I dropped the class. And I remember the professor being a little perturbed, but I dropped it early enough that I, got, I was able to withdraw without any penalty. But had I stayed, perhaps the professor would have sat down and said, now you've learned and practiced traditional banking theory. Let me tell you how banking really works. And And this is something I didn't know until a few years ago how banks are really just bookkeepers they're creative accountants who can create money and create credit out of nothing through the magic of accounting. now in college, my accounting skills were a little shaky I, I was a finance major and and I, I suspect all knew. Finance majors, accounting is a little bit of a challenge. I remember muttering to myself, debits and assets on the left, credits and liabilities on the right, referring to which side of the ledger T-account the digits needed to be placed. I eventually learned accounting in college and then spent the first two to three years after graduate school heavily involved in financial statement analysis as a credit analyst, as a planning manager, and so I, I knew accounting by the end. But even as a young college student, I think I could have grasped what if the professor had showed me how banking really works. And I'm not sure the professor ever would have. He might have been steeped in this idea of financial intermediation and fractional reserves. Mike from the UK referred me to a paper that was really, really helpful in explaining and simplifying the concepts I'm sharing with you today. It was by Richard A. Werner it was titled how do banks create money and why can other why can other firms not do the same published december 2014 in the international review of financial analysis if you are a member of my insiders guide you would have gotten a link to that paper along with a summary article i wrote summarizing how banks create money if you're not a member of my insiders guide just go to moneyfortherestofus.net and you can sign up there and you can also find this paper in the show notes. If you would like to get the paper sent to you directly right now, you can text the word BANKING, B-A-N-K-I-N-G, to the number 44222. You'll reply with your email when I send you back a text, and then I'll send you the paper directly via email. That's if you're in the U.S. So, the word BANKING to 44222. So, this paper had some very, very basic concepts for how this work and explains, you know, why are banks different? Why are they different than a corporation or a non-bank when a non-bank issues a loan? We're going to do a little bit of simple accounting. If a non-bank company makes a loan, it records the amount of the loan as an asset. It's a receivable, called loan receivable. It's on your balance sheet, it's on the left side, right? Assets on the left. And then when the non-bank company pays out the loan, its cash balance, which is also an asset on its balance sheet, goes down by the amount of the loan. In other words, the the non-bank's balance sheet doesn't expand. The company simply swaps a cash asset for a loan receivable. The cash is on the left side of the balance sheet. It's an asset. The loan receivable is on the left side. And so when the loan is paid out to The borrower, the company's cash balance goes down. And why is that? Well, because a non-bank company is not a bank. Their cash is recorded and accounted for at a bank. But when a bank makes a loan, they also record a loan receivable on their balance sheet. But here is where things get a little creative. When the loan is funded, the bank doesn't reduce its cash balance, its asset on the left side of its balance sheet like a non-bank does. Instead, the bank records a customer deposit as a liability on its balance sheet in the same amount of the loan. Liabilities go on the right, assets on the left. Asset, the loan receivable is an asset asset. And then to balance out that asset, the bank puts a liability called a customer deposit. How can banks do this? Well, because banks are the accountant of record when it comes to keeping tracks of deposits. That's what banks do. They can keep track of deposits. If you look at a bank's financial statement, a big liability is these customers' deposits. Here's how Richard Werner describes it. In this paper, here's his quote: "Bank credit creation does not does not channel existing money to new uses; it newly creates money that did not exist beforehand and channels it to some use. What makes this creative counting possible is the other function of banks as the settlement system of all non-cash transactions in the economy. Since banks work as the accountant of record, while the rest of the economy assumes they are honest accountant." It is possible for banks to increase the money in the accounts of some of us, those who receive a loan, by simply altering the figures. Nobody else will notice because agents cannot distinguish between money that has actually been saved and deposited and money that has been created out of nothing by the bank. Banks create money by altering the accounting records. Non-banks can't create money when they issue loans because ultimately they have to reduce their cash balances that are on deposit at their bank in order to fund the loan. Because banks are the entity that keep track of deposits, they don't reduce their own cash balances or somebody else's deposit when they issue a loan. Instead, they create a new deposit that matches the amount of the loan. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Early in 2014, the Bank of England, the central bank of the UK, describes this same process in their paper, Money Creation in a Modern Economy. Here's the quote. Commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. When a bank makes a loan, for example, to someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it does not typically do so by giving them thousands of pounds worth of banknotes. Instead, it credits their bank account with a bank deposit of the size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created. For this reason, some economists have referred to bank deposits as fountain pen money, created at the stroke of bankers' pens when they approve loans. There's the Central Bank of England telling us the same thing. Banks create money out of thin air. Are there no constraints on banks? Well, when they take on a deposit, they still have to keep this, this reserve balance, but the reality is reserve balances don't prevent banks from making loans. Now, banks also have to keep a, a capital reserve. In other words, they, they have a reserve for the deposits in case depositors want to pull in money, but they also have to have, to have sufficient capital, and capital would be assets minus liabilities equals the capital or the surplus. But here's what the Bank of England says regarding their, these reserves, because there's this idea that central banks can control how much banks lend by raising and lowering the amount of reserves bank has to keep. But in reality, central banks keep those reserves the same, central banks being one of the regulators of banks, of commercial banks. So here's the Bank of England. In reality, neither are reserves a binding constraint on lending. Nor does the central bank fix the amount of reserves that are available. As with the relationship between deposits and loans, that relationship that I just described, that loans create deposits, not the other way it went around. went so round. The Bank of England says, the relationship between reserves and loans typically operates in the reverse way to that described in some economic textbooks. Banks first decide how much to lend depending on the profitable lending opportunities available to them, which will crucially depend on the interest rates set by the Bank of England, or in the case of the U.S., the Federal Reserve. It is these lending decisions that determine how many bank deposits are created by the banking system. These fictional deposits, these deposits created out of thin air, So it's these lending decisions that determine how many banks' deposits are created. Going on with the quote, the amount of bank deposits in turn influences how much central bank money banks want to hold in reserve to meet withdrawals by the public, make payment to other banks, or meet regulatory liability requirements, which is then in normal times supplied on demand by the Bank of England. And in the case uh, of the U.S. So there's this idea called Fed fed rate the fed funds rate this is a rate this is a rate that the the federal reserve sets that banks borrow from each other overnight and, or from the the federal reserve and and why do they do that because they after they make their loans and they realize okay this is what our deposits are here's what our loans are here's what we need to have in our reserve balance then they'll go out and they'll find the reserves and they'll borrow it if they need to and so The reserve requirements doesn't determine how much banks lend. What determines it is how much they want to lend. They can lend as much as they want. What about this idea that they have to have sufficient capital? Well, even in that case, banks can use funny money to do that. Here's Richard Werner again. Quote, since banks invest money as fictitious deposits, or invent money as fictitious deposits, it can be readily shown that capital adequacy-based bank regulation does not have to restrict bank activity. Banks can create money and hence arrange for money to be made available to purchase newly issued shares that increase bank capital. In other words, the bank could simply invent the money that is then used to increase capital. This is what Barclays Bank did in 2008 in order to avoid the use of tax money to shore up the bank's capital. Barclays raised 5.8 billion pounds in new equity from Gulf Sovereign Wealth Investors. And how did they do that? They did it by lending those same Gulf Sovereign Wealth Investors the money. They they lent the money that the – they created the money. They lent it, so they created the money out of thin air that these investors then invested back into the bank to increase the bank's capital and everyone was happy. What I have described is how 97% of the world's money is created. Money isn't real. Money is just digits. It's a spreadsheet. And it scares me and it makes me want to go under a rock when I think about it. Which is why it's important to not just own financial assets. I like to own something real. Some land. A building. Something. Not all of it. But I just want to be able to own something real knowing that much of money isn't real. It's just numbers. Now, money is the ability, also it's, it represents future purchasing power. And so when a bank is creating money, it's creating deposits, people can buy things with that. They can, they can take this these digits and convert it to a real resource. A wealth of a nation is their their real things, their land, their ability to produce things. The central bank tries to control how much banks lend by adjusting interest rates, short-term interest rates, trying to influence long-term interest rates and set it at a level that banks don't create too much money by lending because if you create too much money, then you have too much purchasing power chasing too few real resources, and that is what can create inflation. Now, if we didn't do it this way and banks couldn't create money out of thin air, then we would probably have a huge deflationary problem. Suddenly, we wouldn't be able to grow the money supply. Now, let's go back to the idea of can governments create money because they've outsourced the vast majority of the money creation to the private banking sector, and they've given these banks essentially a monopoly to create money, and because we have to use the money to pay our taxes. Here's Richard Werner again. Today, tax payments cannot be made in legal tender, in other words, in cash, such as Bank of England notes or, in in the case of U.S., dollars, but only in bank credit money. That's how we make tax payments. Which is private company credit created by banks, reclassification of their account payables to liabilities as imaginary customer deposits. By forcing all taxpayers to acquire bank money in this way, the state effectively transfers sovereignty over money creation to banks. We have to pay our taxes with, you write a check, a bank check, that is represents fake money to pay Taxes. Werner refers to a quote by Adam Smith in Wealth of a Nations. Here's the quote A prince who should enact that certain proportion of his taxes should be paid in paper money of a certain kind might thereby give certain value to this paper money. Adam Smith knew in seventeen seventy six that if the state says you pay your taxes in this money, this particular type of money, in today's world, bank credit that gives value to that money because we have to go out and earn it and find it so we can pay our taxes. So can the federal government create money? In theory they can. In reality they don't. In theory, and this goes back way back to episode 1 on the podcast, the government because money is digits, they can change accounts, the the numbers in the account of some that somebody has because it it, it that's Certainly, they have the ability to do though, do so, and that's when I talked about when government spends that creates money, and when they tax, they're taking money, supply, they're taking purchasing power out of the economy, and, and so they're destroying money or that purchasing power. If a federal government then spends more than it takes in in terms of tax revenue, then it runs a deficit, and so that would essentially be excess purchasing power that governments have created if they don't do anything at that point. But in reality, what governments then do is they are required, in most cases, to balance their books, balance their accounting books, so they go out and they issue government debt to to essentially fund, and I put quotes around the word fund because they don't have to do that, but from an accounting perspective, they issue debt, government bonds, which Investors then buy those bonds. They take some of that fake money, that potential purchasing power, and buy a bond. And so the government soaks up the potential purchasing power that was created with the deficit. And so in, in reality, the government is not creating new purchasing power because it, Oh, if it runs a budget deficit, it always offsets that by issuing government bonds that soaks up purchasing power. So it is really the private banking system that is creating the vast majority of the money in the world. So that is Episode 94, How Money is Created and Destroyed. Show notes are available at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's awesome. You can sign up for my Insider's Guide. I email those show notes to you weekly. I also will send a summary article. If you want to get that Richard A. Werner article on how banks are create, or how banks create money – Right now, just text the word BANKING to 44222. Last fall, I hosted a webinar, and it was really, really enjoyable in in terms of just being able to interact with listeners of the show. And and then I've taken about a a five- to six-month break from that as I've worked on rolling out some of the asset allocation models, the smart beta, and some of the other enhancements to the Money for the Rest of Us hub. And I want to, again, start doing webinars. But when I do a webinar, I want to be very transparent and show, here's what I'm thinking now. Here's what you can earn investing now. Here are market conditions now in terms of valuations of the economy. Are we heading into a recession? What about market internals? And and so the way that I want to do webinars, instead of opening up to everyone so they can just keep attending every webinar, if I do it monthly or every couple of weeks, I'm going to kind of invite through the Insider's Guide. So if you're a member of my Insider's Guide, you'll, you'll get an invite to join a webinar, and I'll do different dates. Then you'll have, you have an opportunity to, to hear in real time my current thoughts. I'll show you what's on the hub, particularly, and not just show you what's on the hub, but show you my specific thoughts right now in terms of positioning, risk management, etc., the economy, and, but I'm going to limit to 100 people at a time, and then once you've had an opportunity, then, then other people will. So if you remember my insider's guide, you'll get an invite in the future, and please consider joining me. It'll be live. You'll be able to get your specific questions answered on money, the economy, investing, personal finance, and so we'll start doing that. But you can only access it by becoming a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Insider's Guide. That's free, and I've just told you how to get that. Last week on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I released the most recent monthly investment conditions report and portfolio profile. Members of the hub use this to, to keep their emotions in check, to get take an objective view of what is going on now with markets, the economy valuations and whether they should be making some adjustments in their portfolio. The re- I don't know when you'll be listening to this perhaps when it was released in February 2016 maybe you're listening to this episode a year later but right now things are a little tenuous for markets and if you want my latest thoughts you can get that by becoming a member of the moneyfortherestofushub.com and hopefully that'll help you not only with how to emotionally keep things under control in terms of your investing, but also get specific guidance and help in terms of setting your long-term asset allocation and to find out what you can earn investing over the next 10 years. You can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money investing in the economy. Have a great week.